Today I'm talking to Dr. Eric Wessel. He is the Director of the Office of Student Conflict Resolutions at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He holds a doctorate in education and has worked in student conduct for some time. He previously worked at Penn State in a similar role before moving to Ferris State where I met him. I know my dad worked with him on some student conflict situations and was on several review panels with him. I'll admit for this week I did get a little help putting together the questions. So would you like to fill in any gaps I may have missed in your intro or anything from your past? No, thank you for that, uh, uh, that wonderful introduction. Uh, that generally kind of covers my uh, career trajectory. Uh, I've been at the University of Michigan now for uh, just about five years. Uh, and I know that our topic today is uh, talking about Title IX. And so uh, we've been through several iterations of employing Title IX practices uh, in a university setting. And so I'm looking forward to the conversation. So like you said, I really brought you on to talk about Title IX a little bit and kind of follow off the last two episodes. So normally I do start with three really soccer-related questions, but I'll kind of skip over that today. So first, can you talk about what Title IX is? Sure. So I'm happy to, to talk about Title IX. So uh, Title IX, uh, uh, in its uh, core form, is uh, basically a paragraph long. Uh, and it essentially says that uh, uh, no one should be discriminated upon uh, on the basis of sex. And so uh, since the time of the passage of Title IX, uh, that has been interpreted in many different ways and, and expanded upon and expounded upon, both through courts, uh, also through legislation, uh, most recently through uh, regulation uh, from the Department of Education. Uh, so we can certainly talk about the specifics of that, but uh, Title IX uh, in a higher education context uh, requires institutions uh, on an athletic standpoint to uh, offer equitable uh, opportunity for uh, students to engage in uh, experiences uh, to, to be on um, uh, athletic teams, have equitable uh, uh, opportunities across athletic teams uh, on the basis of, uh, of sex. And so uh, that's one uh, area of Title IX. It's also been interpreted out to uh, really cover uh, uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault, uh, which is also a uh, important form, a very important form of uh, gender-based uh, harassment that occurs in campus communities. And so that's where my, a lot of my expertise comes in, is in uh, working with uh, university communities, uh, in, in my case in particular, working at the University of Michigan, the University of Michigan community, uh, uh, and working with the resolution processes to uh, enact what's required uh, under Title IX to remedy the effects of discrimination and prevent its uh, recurrence. Uh, in the educational community. So what is your role in supporting Title IX? How are you able to support it? Yeah, great question. So there's many aspects uh, to it. And it's not just my office that does this. This At the University of Michigan, it's a very uh, 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 partner-oriented approach. So my office, the Office of Student Conflict Resolution, uh, is one of the offices that is uh, key to that. Our Office for Institutional Equity uh, is another really important office. Uh, their office is where our Title IX coordinator is housed. 
Now our Title IX coordinator is, so every institution across the nation uh, needs to designate uh, at least one Title IX coordinator, a primary Title IX coordinator. And that role is responsible for uh, uh, the policies and processes uh, that fall underneath the rubric of Title IX. Uh, so our Title IX coordinator is in institutional equity. They also supervise uh, the investigators. So we have an investigative process that when there is a allegation made, point made uh, of sexual uh, assault, uh, sexual harassment, uh, stalking, uh, intimate partner violence, uh, all of the categories that fall underneath the rubric of Title IX, uh, the Title IX coordinator is responsible for ensuring that the investigative procedures, the hearing uh, procedures that come after investigation. Um, my office picks up at the point of investigation. We uh, facilitate the hearing process. Uh, we use external uh, hearing officers at the University of Michigan, so external uh, attorneys in the community uh, serve as our hearing officers. Uh, my office is also responsible for uh, determining the sanctions, the appropriate sanctions that will be applied in the educational and restorative measures that are appropriate when somebody is found responsible throughout through our hearing process, responsible for uh, an allegation of sexual misconduct under Title IX. Uh, my office is also responsible for the appeals stage, the process, and also the after process monitoring of any measures that are put in place in order to fulfill our Title IX obligations. Now, we're also responsible for uh, the other uh, pathway, which is uh, uh, not um, uh, too terribly common in higher education, but we also have what we call our adaptable resolution pathway. So we recognize that uh, uh, an investigation and a hearing uh, isn't necessarily of interest to everybody who has experienced uh, harm that is sexual or gender-based in nature. You know, we recognize that uh, there are other uh, means by which uh, uh, we can meet the need that is expressed by that individual. So when I say our adaptable resolution procedures, what I mean is uh, a variety of resolution pathways uh, that could like look like, um, and not all of these are appropriate for all circumstances, but it could look like uh, dialogue. Uh, it could look like uh, a, a circle process, a restorative circle process. It could look like uh, shuttle negotiation, where we're working toward a, uh, a voluntary agreement between all the parties. Regardless of which process we take, we're always working toward a, uh, a resolution that is going to meet the needs of the parties and meet the needs of, uh, uh, that are required under Title IX. Uh, so that's just a, in a nutshell what our um, process looks like. There's certainly you know, more nuances to it, but in broad strokes, uh, that's what we do at the University of Michigan. So how has Title IX changed over the years and how have your processes changed as well? Yeah, so Title IX has changed uh, uh, quite a bit, and as, as I know you know, uh, recently changed quite a bit as well through uh, the Department of Education's uh, regulations, which technically go into effect uh, on August 14th uh, of this year. So many institutions, uh, including the University of Michigan, are uh, uh, working as quickly as possible to uh, 
uh, amend policy language, uh, figure out how it's going to impact procedure, uh, uh, determine how to best enact what is required of us under these new regulations in a way that's most supportive uh, for our uh, students in our community. So in the five years that I have uh, been the director uh, of the Office of Student Conflict Resolution at the University of Michigan, uh, Title IX has changed uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, so from the days of the 2011 Dear Colleague letter, uh, that was uh, a bit before my time in, in this particular role, but uh, uh, not too terribly uh, long before that. And uh, certainly since then, you know, we've seen several uh, Dear Colleague letters uh, come out. Uh, since then, we've seen Dear Colleague letters uh, that have been rescinded. We've seen uh, guidance that's been uh, rescinded in general. And so with political change, there's been a lot of uh, shifting back and forth with regard to what institutions, what universities are required to do uh, under uh, Title IX. Um, however, what I would say that is um, you know, fundamental that, that really has not changed uh, is our baseline commitment to a fundamentally fair process for students, uh, one that is fully supportive of uh, all of our students, that's supportive of those who have been uh, harmed in our community, uh, that's supportive of um, uh, the community itself uh, as well. You know, so uh, certainly the, the primary, the primary party that uh, uh, has, has experienced the harm is a primary concern uh, for us, but we recognize that uh, harm that occurs in community often has uh, effects across the community uh, as well. So uh, other ways that Title IX has, um, has, has changed. So one of the big ways that things have changed, and this is with respect to uh, uh, procedure, uh, and is also more relevant for universities that are in the Sixth Circuit, uh, which is uh, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, um, which includes uh, the state of Michigan, of course. Uh, and this came out of a, a court case that uh, arose uh, here at the University of Michigan as well. And the court case is uh, called Doe v. Baum. And uh, in the Baum case, the Sixth Circuit opined that our current procedures that we were using at the time, which we called a single investigator model, where an investigator and OIE both made an investigative report, but one that also included a finding of responsibility, uh, whether or not there was a finding of responsibility. Now, of course, that was uh, approved uh, or not by our Title IX coordinator, so there was a check and balance to that uh, internally, but the uh, Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals determined that um, that wasn't sufficient to meet our Title IX obligations, our Title IX due process obligations. And so what the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said that we needed to do was we needed to provide uh, an opportunity for a hearing, which included live cross-examination between the parties. Uh, so since January of 2019, uh, this has been a, a pretty big shift uh, for us, but we've been uh, facilitating uh, hearing processes uh, as required by the Dovey Baum ruling, uh, where the opportunity to engage in cross-examination uh, between the parties 
uh, and between the parties and our hearing officer uh, was possible. So that's, that's uh, been pretty substantial. Uh, with the new regulations, that's going to essentially apply to everybody, essentially apply to all institutions uh, across the country who accept federal financial aid. So what are some of the new changes in Title IX? Yeah, um, so some of the big ones are uh, definitions. So uh, for example, uh, when we talk about uh, what constitutes uh, sexual harassment uh, under the policy, uh, in previous iterations of guidance, uh, it used combinations of, of behavior which is uh, uh, severe, uh, which behavior is uh, pervasive, uh, and there's there's one more. I, I'm I'm blanking on it at the moment. It'll come back to me. Um, uh, persistent and pervasive. Uh, the previous guidance used the word or, so uh, severe, persistent, or pervasive, and that was, I believe, in recognition that sometimes behavior is is uh, substantially severe. Um, but happens once. Uh, the new regulations uh, take out the word or and replace it with the word and, which is important because now instead of it just having to be one of those, it has to be all three uh, for it to fall under the jurisdiction of Title IX prohibited conduct. Uh, now that does not mean that an institution can't go beyond that, uh, that is certainly the floor, and an institution can go beyond that, um, but it can't do so under the rubric of Title IX. So it can, a university can use its conduct procedures to prohibit behavior uh, that um, does not fall under Title IX, uh, but it, it will certainly complicate uh, things in terms of helping our communities understand uh, what behaviors are uh, prohibited um, under uh, Title IX. The other thing is uh, there's some geographical differences as well from old guidance to what is required under the regulations uh, that just came out. So uh, only prohibited behavior uh, which uh, occurs in the context uh, uh, or under the auspices of a university program or activity. Uh, falls under Title IX. Uh, for example, uh, student organizations uh, which might exist but perhaps aren't officially recognized by the university and uh, uh, where perhaps they meet or reside in a space that's not controlled by the university, it's likely that that behavior that occurs in those spaces does not fall under the rubric of Title IX. Uh, where it had been before. The other thing that's really important that's, that's new, uh, and also, from my opinion, my perspective, uh, uh, can be problematic, is uh, uh, the regulations require, again, for it to fall under the um, auspices of Title IX, that the behavior occur uh, in the context of um, happening to somebody who's in the United, currently in the United States. So we have many programs, as do many institutions, have many programs that uh, exist outside of the United States. 
where we have always interpreted Title IX as extending to uh, uh, those places and those spaces uh, simply because there are programs. Um, but under Title IX, as the regulations currently state, study abroad programs, for example, um, behavior that occurs in the context of the study abroad program uh, would not fall under the rubric of Title IX. So those are just a few examples of things that uh, are changing uh, under Title IX. But uh, uh, there's 2,000 pages of preamble uh, and then regulation. So there's, there's plenty of nuance as well. So how are changes like these made and communicated as well? Uh, the first thing that the Department of Education needs to do when they are creating regulation, which by the way, this is uh, relatively new. The previous administration chose to issue guidance, which has a different weight, a different legal weight to, reg to regulation. So this is fundamentally different. And the way that regulation gets uh, created is first and foremost through a public comment period. So they issue the Department of Education issues proposed regulations, which they did uh, over a year ago now. They issue proposed regulations, and then there's this public comment period. Uh, and in this particular case, I, I don't recall the exact number, but uh, the department uh, received thousands of uh, comments uh, from individuals, from groups, from legal organizations, from higher education institutions, from K-12 institutions, basically you name it, you know, they received a comment from uh, that particular stakeholder or that particular group. Now, the department is, is uh, uh, required then to go through all of those comments. And certainly there's going to be some duplication in the comments, but they need to go through all those comments and they need to address uh, those comments. And that's in part why the Department of Education's issued regulations uh, are over 3,000 pages, because they need to address those comments uh, and those questions that came through the public comment period. Now, how the Department of Education uh, communicates their uh, regulations is officially, it comes through what's called the Federal Register. So the Federal Register is the repository uh, it's all online. It's the online repository for uh, uh, regulatory documents of this kind, of this, uh, of this uh, such. I, I think that it's accurate to say at this juncture that the official regulation has not been uh, uh, communicated or distributed. However, uh, the unofficial, um, the 2,000-page unofficial uh, regulations have been made public on the Department of Education's government website. Uh, as you might guess, uh, people have been, including myself and my colleagues, have been eagerly awaiting these regulations, and so we've been uh, looking for them uh, along the way, as has have many people across the country. And so as soon as they hit the uh, website, their existence uh, pretty much um, was fairly widely known. Uh, the existence was also fairly widely uh, distributed and uh, has now been uh, pretty, pre pretty widely discussed uh, across uh, higher ed. There's been lots of um, training and a lot of webinars and a lot of um, listserv conversation and a lot of 
internal to institutions uh, conversations about how this is going to apply to uh, our respective institutions. Um, but in terms of how this gets communicated to the broader public, the broader community, um, that might be a little bit more hit or miss. Uh, uh, you know, so you, know, you, you may or may not have seen it uh, come through the regular news cycle, depending on, on what uh, your, your news outlet might be. Um, but I suspect that as we get a little bit closer to uh, this fall term, uh, as we get closer to the implementation period, which again is August 14th, uh, we might start seeing more um, uh, publicization of uh, Title IX and the regulations and what is required. I also think that we're going to start seeing, and I believe this will be true for us as well, uh, a lot more uh, communication from higher education institutions to the uh, public as well. What should student athletes know about Title IX and how it protects them? Yeah, um, so uh, uh, there's two ways that I would answer uh, this question. So uh, the first is that, uh, as I talked about uh, closer to the top of our time together, uh, uh, Title IX uh, requires of institutions that um, equal access, uh, equal opportunity uh, is provided uh, to students uh, and for Title IX specifically on the basis of sex. Now, um, uh, what I would also say, the other way that I would answer this question is uh, when we're talking about protecting uh, athletes, uh, this is an important question because we've seen a lot of really high profile, very public circumstances where uh, individuals and institutions uh, uh, failed to effectively uh, protect athletes uh, in particular. Um, but athletes and, and uh, uh, those athletes are, are, many of them are students as well. And so students uh, in general. Uh, and so Title IX is designed to be at its core, uh, fundamentally, an instrument, a legal mechanism to push institutions to ensure that uh, we have processes and procedures, uh, that we have training and education, uh, that we have uh, appropriate oversight, uh, appropriate supervisory oversight, appropriate reporting oversight, uh, uh, where uh, people have an obligation to report and they know that they have an obligation to report when they um, uh, know of or hear of uh, an allegation of sexual misconduct, whether that is between students uh, or between faculty and students, uh, or between staff and students, uh, or between other members of the community uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, what I think is important for, um, uh, you know, for athletes to know about and to be aware of uh, is uh, just kind of the basic uh, understanding of, of Title IX. I would always encourage uh, students on campus to, um, uh, to access their institution's uh, policy. You know, it might not necessarily be realistic for everybody to uh, do a deep dive uh, into the policy itself, but at least to, to have some familiarity with, uh, with the policy, how to access the policy, how to access resources on campus. That's a huge component to this, is 
many institutions have, well, all institutions have uh, some level of resources that is uh, appropriate for their particular institution, or at least should be appropriate for their particular institution uh, and for their community and for their students. And so uh, athletes uh, who are aware of the resources that uh, exist for them on their campus, um, uh, that's incredibly important because it's not just important for them, it's also important for uh, them to be aware uh, so that they can help other people, other people in their orbit who might be going through uh, uh, an experience where they have been assaulted or harassed uh, or uh, have experienced uh, uh, stalking uh, or have experienced uh, intimate partner violence. And so, uh, that's you know that's the first thing is is creating uh, awareness within uh, athlete uh, communities. Uh, I think is incredibly uh, important, uh, regardless of what institution you're connected to. How does Title IX protect coaches as well, and what is their responsibilities? Yeah, so um, most institutions uh, currently uh, will designate coaches. The, the term for it is responsible employees. So uh, under the current guidance, under the current rubric of the concept of responsible employees, with very few exceptions, I, I'm, not, I'm not aware of an institution that, that does this differently, uh, but uh, coaches, uh, coaching staff, athletic staff, athletic administration uh, uh, are, are typically all designated as responsible employees. And what that means is, uh, when they receive a report uh, of an allegation of sexual misconduct, uh, they're required to uh, share that information with the Title IX coordinator uh, so that the Title IX coordinator can follow up appropriately, uh, so that the Title IX coordinator can enact the processes that are um, uh, available. Now, does that mean that the individual who uh, uh, has experienced the harm is required to engage? in an investigative process? Uh, it does not. Uh, does it mean that they need to engage, at least for the University of Michigan, in an adaptable resolution process? Absolutely not, it's a voluntary process. Uh, but when uh, information is provided to a responsible employee, they're required to report that information forward. Now, under the new regulations, the concept of responsible employee is uh, essentially going away. Uh, and uh, what's replacing it is really a, a two-prong rubric of uh, what falls under the concept of actual knowledge. When an institution has actual knowledge uh, of an allegation, which triggers its responsibility to uh, investigate. And when an institution has actual knowledge is going to, to fall into two parts. One is where information has been provided to, to directly to the Title IX coordinator. And the other is uh, where information uh, or an allegation has been provided to a uh, university official with the authority to take corrective action. And so that's something that universities are grappling with right now is, is how to best interpret uh, what that means, what that looks like, who are these individuals who have authority to take corrective action. What I would suspect, and I, I think is very likely to be true at, at the University of Michigan, is that coaches 
very well may still fall under that rubric of having authority to take some form of corrective action. For example, my role. Um, uh, very clearly, uh, my role has easily interpreted into having the authority to take some form of corrective action for the purposes of Title IX. So uh, uh, there's, there's things shifting on that front, um, but I don't expect that many institutions will stray too far from what's currently uh, expected. Because after all, we've certainly seen um, plenty of circumstances and plenty of circumstances that currently exist in Michigan, um, uh, at the University of Michigan in particular, where uh, it's important that um, uh, uh, people whom students have a uh, reasonable assumption uh, that they would be able to do something uh, when that student tells them about their experience. Uh, and I think many institutions will still, um, rightly so, uh, maintain uh, that expectation that uh, uh, frontline staff, those staff that are uh, in authority, uh, those, student, the, those staff that are working directly with uh, students, whether it be coaches uh, or people like myself, um, will have responsibility to report uh, in order to fulfill our Title IX obligation. How can Title IX be used for other types of discrimination, just outside of sexual assault and gender violence? Yeah, so that's a that's a uh, an interesting question, and and um, it's interesting because uh, Title IX itself uh, really is specific to one form of discrimination, and yet at the same time we know that uh, there's many forms of discrimination and harassment uh, uh, based on many different social identities that people uh, hold, uh, more specifically, legally, based on protected classes uh, that exist. So at least at the University of Michigan, sexual orientation, so on and so forth. Uh, your question of whether or not Title IX, what Title IX can do to uh, uh, influence uh, those other forms of discrimination, the answer to that is, is Title IX doesn't really speak to that. However, there are plenty of other laws, discrimination laws, uh, that do speak to uh, other forms of discrimination uh, and harassment. And I would suspect nearly all institutions are going to have policies and procedures that are going to speak directly to those other forms of discrimination. So let's take um, uh, discrimination based on uh, race. So harassment uh, between students uh, that's based on race, uh, that would uh, fall under a separate policy uh, that would fall under our statement of student rights and responsibilities at the University of Michigan, which also is facilitated, that those processes and procedures are facilitated through my office. Uh, uh, we've got a different set of procedures uh, for that. Uh, the reason that we have a different set of procedures for that is because Title IX prescribes, as we've been talking about today, some very specific procedures for how gender-based discrimination uh, proceeds. Um, but we have uh, a robust process for other forms of discrimination as well, as do um, uh, other institutions across the country. What can future students do to learn about how safe the campus, the campus they're going to is before they actually go there? A couple things that they can do. Uh, one is 
uh, uh, to understand that there's other laws, uh, one in particular called the Cleary Act. Uh, and the Cleary Act uh, requires institutions to collect statistical crime data and publish and publicize that information uh, uh, on their website. They also need to provide that information uh, uh, to the federal government uh, for review uh, as well. Uh, that is done on an annual basis. Institutions are required to submit their Cleary data, uh, which includes um, uh, all Cleary uh, uh, crimes, um, you know, which are uh, all sexual misconduct matters fall under uh, uh, Cleary crimes. Uh, all, all sexual assault, I should say, um, uh, fall under Cleary crimes. And uh, uh, anybody can log on to um, uh, the University of Michigan's website and search for uh, our annual security report. Uh, so that's the terminology that somebody would need to search for, our annual secure, fire, fire safety and security report and uh, they can access that data. So they can see what are the frequencies of uh, 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 different types of uh, crimes in our community. Uh, generally, what are the locations uh, of uh, uh, those crimes uh, so that people can have a better understanding of um, uh, to you know, make decisions that uh, are safe for them, uh, whatever that means uh, for them in terms of decisions that they're making about where they're going to live or uh, what institution they're going to attend. So every institution that accepts federal financial aid is, is required to submit their query data. The other thing that I would suggest, particularly as it pertains to Title IX and uh, uh, sexual misconduct on campus, is um, uh, many institutions, ourselves included, will publish a um, annual report. So our uh, Office for Institutional Equity uh, on an annual basis publishes a, uh, an annual report uh, that gets into some pretty specific detail about um, uh, matters that have uh, occurred that fall underneath the rubric of, of Title IX that have been processed through uh, the procedures that we have here at the University of Michigan. So those are two things that, uh, that people can access um, uh, publicly. Uh, the other thing that I would suggest is anybody that is um, uh, interested in coming to the University of Michigan or interested in going to another institution across the country uh, that has uh, specific questions, um, they're always welcome to uh, reach out to, uh, uh, so for us in particular, uh, 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 they can contact our Office for Institutional Equity, uh, they can reach out to our Title IX coordinator uh, if they have specific questions that um, uh, they would like to explore. So those are just a few ideas. How does your office encourage students to receive help or support them during a hearing process? Yeah, um, so we are really fortunate at the University of Michigan to have um, a pretty full slate of uh, supportive resources. One in particular, we've got one of the oldest uh, 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 survivor support and advocacy offices uh, in the country. Uh, it's called SAPAC, Sexual Assault Prevention and Awareness Center. Uh, 
And uh, our SAPAC app uh, office um, really is um, groundbreaking and pioneering in providing uh, uh, supportive uh, advocacy and resources for uh, survivors of sexual assault and sexual misconduct in general on campus. Um, on the other side of the equation, so uh, a hearing almost always includes at least two people, uh, if not uh, more. Um, uh, but we also have a respondent support program that's run through our dean of students office. So in an interest uh, in providing uh, throughout the totality of our processes and procedures, providing equitable access uh, uh, to supportive resources, uh, that's one uh, driving force, driving um, uh, reason behind uh, the uh, existence of our respondent support program uh, on campus. Uh, so uh, respondents are not required, neither are our claimants required to utilize those uh, resources respectively, um, but they are um, available uh, to them. Uh, the other thing that is um, uh, in, an important element to our process that also uh, touches on uh, the hearing aspect is what we call our comprehensive case management model. So we have two uh, case managers, sexual misconduct case managers uh, in my office, and they work with our investigators and the Office of Institutional Equity. Uh, they do joint intake with uh, uh, both the complainant and the respondent uh, at the outset uh, of the process. Uh, and then uh, for those cases that flow through the investigative pathway and then enter into an invest uh, into a hearing uh, phase um, our uh, case manager is really responsible for coordinating that entire process uh, responsible for providing a singular point of contact uh, our case managers at no point along the way are making decisions for people they're really just there to be that uh, 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 that that point of contact for clear communication where we're not uh, handing students off, passing students off between uh, offices, which can often create confusion. Uh, so, you know, we recognize that uh, Title IX uh, requires complex multi-step processes that um, can often be really taxing and trying for a student, uh, for all students who are involved in the process, uh, who are also trying to be a student too. Uh, first and foremost. Uh, that's the purpose of them being here on campus. And so um, for us in the Office of Student Conflict Resolution, we try to do everything that we possibly can to uh, ensure that uh, our, our students in the process have all the supportive resources, uh, clear access to, to uh, information, access to uh, uh, consistent communication along the way um, uh, to help them through the process. When you do have a hearing, what are some of your goals? Yeah, so um, I would actually reframe uh, the question because um, uh, when you say your goals, um, I, I, I don't have an agenda uh, in the hearing process. As a matter of fact, I don't actually even have a role uh, in the hearing process uh, myself per se. Um, but what I could reframe that to is what is the hearing officer's goal uh, in that process? Uh, so the hearing officer is the one who has primary responsibility for maintaining that process uh, from the beginning of the hearing to the end. 
maintaining a process that is um, uh, respectful, uh, maintaining a process that, uh, to the degree that we can, does not um, uh, create uh, uh, unnecessary harm, uh, unnecessary additional harm. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, the goal of uh, a hearing officer is to uh, uh, understand what has been established as fact through the investigative process uh, and then facilitate a, uh, a, a hearing that allows either party to um, uh, ask questions uh, uh, of the other um, uh, and also allows the hearing officer to ask questions of each party for the purposes of determining uh, 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 responsibility and determining credibility of the parties and the witnesses. So uh, uh, oftentimes, although this isn't always the case, but oftentimes um, stories, uh, narratives, uh, uh, truths for parties will differ uh, on really significant and important facts. Um, and that's where it's uh, the responsibility of the hearing officer in the hearing process uh, 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 to ask all the important questions that are necessary in order for them to uh, render a judgment based on a preponderance of the evidence. So in other words, uh, more likely than not, is it more likely than not based on all the evidence and based on their observations uh, 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 and determinations of credibility of the parties, uh, whether or not a, um, uh, uh, a violation of uh, uh, prohibited conduct has occurred and whether or not it was the respondent who was the one who, who committed that violation. So that's the goal. Sometimes people say athletes aren't held as accountable as others. How would you respond when someone asks you a question like that? You know, I, I think that um, uh, I think that there's been some very uh, public um, uh, circumstances which have called into question uh, whether or not uh, athletes have uh, been held to the same standard as any other student on campus. So what Title IX requires of us is that uh, at the fundamental core, uh, it does not matter who the individual is, does not matter if they're an athlete, uh, does not matter, matter if they are the most important athlete at an institution, uh, the process should be the same. Uh, now, uh, what's, what's a little bit tricky sometimes is, um, you know, sometimes that criticism comes from um, uh, you know, very public circumstances, very public uh, reports. And what I'm very mindful of, uh, uh, just by the very nature that, that I do this work, uh, is oftentimes um, uh, our internal requirements for uh, confidentiality and not being able to share uh, specific details of uh, sexual misconduct processes. Um, not all the relevant details often make their way outside of uh, the university's process. 
Uh, and so uh, 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 I, I am confident that there are circumstances, probably plenty of circumstances uh, where institutions across the country um, uh, over time um, have, have not fulfilled their Title IX obligation uh, to the degree that they should uh, as it pertains to uh, athletes uh, on campus. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, there's been certainly been some um, uh, litigation to that fact. There's been some uh, action on the department, on the part of the Department of Education, the Office for Civil Rights, uh, to that effect. So I, you know, I think we can take that as fact. But uh, uh, at its core, at its baseline, and, and I can confirm that this is true uh, at the University of Michigan, uh, that um, uh, where there is an allegation that involves uh, an athlete, uh, that is uh, uh, addressed uh, in the same way uh, that uh, we would address a matter involving any student at the University of Michigan. So we've made it to our final questions. Normally it's really soccer related, but I'm going to try and turn it around. Okay. So what do you hope people remember about your impact to the work you've done and the world? I love that question. The first thing that I would say is my response is always that none of this is about me. Uh, none of this is about um, uh, what uh, I'm able to do or I'm able to contribute or I'm able to ensure um, through our policy, through our procedure, through our supportive resources. Um, ultimately, at, at the end of the day, this is about what a, a community, uh, and for me in particular, what the University of Michigan community um, can do to ensure that our students uh, have every opportunity to engage in full uh, uh, in their educational pursuit. Uh, uh, without fear of uh, harassment, without fear of discrimination, without fear of retaliation. Um, and are policies, procedures uh, perfect? I am really cognizant uh, that uh, they remain imperfect. Um, but what I think is uh, uh, particularly important to remember what what I hope is is uh, a legacy of what I'm contributing to this field. Uh, you know, is re recognizing that you know that we have an opportunity uh, uh, in this moment in time, in this moment in society, to really fundamentally uh, consider and fundamentally think about uh, how we are supporting all of our students, how we're supporting students who are uh, experiencing sexual and gender-based harm. Uh, in our communities, uh, how we uh, provide all the supportive mechanisms that are uh, available to students, um, how we think about um, uh, effective accountability, how we think about providing uh, intervention uh, for students uh, who are uh, perpetrating uh, sexual misconduct on campus. This is an uh, this is an, uh, an important moment uh, in time. Again, it's it's not about me. It's about uh, how the community um, uh, rallies around uh, this moment, uh, and and really lives into uh, all of the uh, uh, resources and opportunities that uh, we have in our uh, communities uh, uh, to ensure our students are supported.